0: Turn to 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians 14, and we'll look at verses 13 to 19 this morning. 1 Corinthians 14, beginning at verse 13, here is God's infallible, inspired, and errant word. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the Amen? Yet you're giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying. For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may be able to instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. God's o God, from whom all good proceeds, grant that by your inspiration we may think those things that are right and by your merciful guiding may do them through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. It just so happens there was an event that made national headlines recently that'll help us get started in thinking in the right direction here this morning about the topic of our chapter, which is uh, praying at Cubs. And uh, apparently in Florida, just about a month and a half ago, An 11-year-old girl who had autism wandered off into a gator-infested swamp somewhere in the Orlando area. Well, it turns out that search and rescue teams were completely unable to find her, and after four days of diligent search, it seemed as if hope of finding her alive was beginning to wane. And then on the fourth day in the morning, a man from her church set off into the wilderness armed with a machete and the ability or the spiritual gift of praying in tongues. And as the man explained, uh, he would pray in tongues, and then he would walk as he felt the Spirit led. And as he walked as he felt the Spirit led, he would cry out her name, and then he would pray in tongues and so forth. And it seems miraculously he found this young child in the swamp as he continued to cry out using this particular process. Now, it's that kind of a process that illustrates how some people perceive of this gift of praying in tongues, that it's some sort of prayer language which helps God and man interact and interface in a very immediate and direct way so that as the prayers go up, the answers come down and the guidance is very concrete and very direct. We want to think this morning about this whole business of prayer tongues because you can see that it takes up quite a bit of Paul's thinking here in verses 14 through 17, and we want to answer from the Word of God what it means to pray in tongues. And the first thing that I want us to do as we think about that is take a moment uh, to overview the context and then analyze a few different illustrations of how this particular phenomena is interpreted. And as we begin our context this morning, no better place to begin uh, than with the word therefore in verse 13. Uh, You can see that therefore looks back to uh, the previous context. And just a a quick summary of that is as follows. Uh, The Apostle Paul begins in verse 14, 1, uh, admonishing the saints to pursue the spiritual gifts. Immediately after saying that, he says, but the real gift that I want you to pursue is the gift of prophecy. And he says the reason why he would rather than pursue the gift of prophecy above all is because it's understandable and because when people hear a prophetic proclamation, they are able to understand it, and when they understand it, they are edified. And as he said that, he immediately contrasted it over against the speaking in tongues. And the principal argument that he had against speaking in tongues was that no one understands. And what he meant by that is no one who was in the immediate vicinity who did not speak in that particular foreign language, they didn't understand. And because they didn't understand, they weren't edified. You see, Paul makes that uh, connection explicit throughout verses 3, 4, and 5. He says in verse 3, one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation. Verse 4, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. And then he said in verse 5, I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edify. Over and over again, he makes the connection between uh, use of the spiritual gift, whether that's prophecy or tongue, saying that the real key to the spiritual gift is making it intelligible, so that it's understandable. Because when it's intelligible and understandable, it produces edification. Without that, it's completely useless. That's the sense of all of the illustrations then you have in verses 7 through 11, really. From a series of different angles, all the Apostle is doing is bringing up uh, this issue of intelligibility. Intelligibility. Uh, People who play with instruments have to use intelligible sounds and chords and... Notes, uh, for instance, to make melodies that are edifying. Same thing with the trumpet. If the trumpeter uh, plays that on the battlefield, he has to make distinct sounds, otherwise the soldiers won't know what commands to follow and so forth. Now, notice that verse 12 sort of brings uh, the whole thought of that passage uh, to a climax and to a summary. He says in verse 12, So also, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. See, if you could draw any one major overarching principle from everything that uh, Paul says in verses 1 through 12 is, here's the ticket, here is the key to this whole business of pursuing and using spiritual gifts. The aim has to be edification, and edification is rooted in the ability of people to understand what is being said, and if it doesn't meet that mark, it's not useful, And more than that, it's not loving. That's the whole point of chapter 13. Remember, chapter 13 shows us the context of the more excellent way of love. And what Paul was laboring to set forth there and prepare for, as he comes into 14, is that whatever is done in church and its worship must be done with the aim of edification. And if it's not, it's selfish and it's unloving. Well, that is what Paul develops in verses 1-12. through He amplifies the usefulness of prophecy, but now he turns to the issue of tongues, and basically he says, you can use tongues in worship too. But you have to do it with the aim of edification. That's the whole sense of verse 13. He says, therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Now, we're not going to get into this particular issue today, but I'm going to basically make the point here and remember and make a note. We're going to have to come back and defend this later. But it does seem to me that there are some people who had the capability of speaking in tongues who did not also have the gift of interpretation. That's the only way we can make uh, this chapter sort of fit together. Okay? But there were obviously people who spoke in tongues who did have the gift of interpretation. And what Paul is saying is if you have both of those together, you better make sure that you interpret when you speak in tongues, or otherwise you should just sit down and keep your mouth shut. He's going to say that in just a few subsequent verses. So he says, uh, verse 13, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. And then he goes into, in verse 14, a different mode of speaking in tongues. Pray. if I, He says, if I pray in a tongue. And that's what we want to sort of zero in on now, okay? This whole business of praying in a tongue. And we know what speaking in a tongue is already. We already demonstrated that at great length. Speaking in a tongue is the supernatural ability to communicate the truth in a foreign language that the speaker had never studied before. So you see, what's praying in a tongue? And it's going to take us a minute to get to the answer to that. Uh, but there's lots of different proposed answers for this. And I want to go over a few of the most prevalent forms of answer to that. And the first answer that's sometimes given, is that prayer tongues are a form of prayer language which scrambles up the prayer requests in a language that the devil doesn't know. Now, I would say, just to be fair, that your average uh, charismatic or maybe even Pentecostal scholar wouldn't defend that. But it is a very prevalent sort of man-on-the-street understanding of prayer tongues. Uh, This uh, should illustrate what I'm trying to say. A gentleman wrote into a Pentecostal teacher on the internet and asked the following question. Uh, Must I ask my pastor to pray for me in order to pray in a tongue? I asked my aunt and she told me to roll my tongue randomly whenever I pray, but my friend told me that I might be praying in Satan's tongue. So I stop for now and I'm asking you. Well, here's the response from the particular Pentecostal teacher. And here is what this gentleman was told. He said, Receiving your prayer tongue always starts with a desire. The Holy Spirit has put this desire in you. Having your own prayer tongue puts you in the position of becoming a prayer warrior and an intercessor. The devil does not want you making him as a doormat under your feet. And this is what having your own prayer tongue does. In other words, what is being said, and here is the philosophy that underlies this particular set of instructions, is that the key to being a prayer warrior, the the, the key to being an effectual praying person, is to scramble up your request in this form of a prayer language or a prayer tongue that may be even peculiar to you that the devil doesn't understand. And if you have that technology or capability, the language is encoded in such a way that the devil won't understand and hinder the prayers getting to God. So that's interpretation number one. That's very common. Interpretation number two that you will often find is that prayer tongues is simply praying in gibberish in worship. It's simply praying in gibberish in worship. One Pentecostal teacher said this, The more commonly received gift of tongues is the one most frequently used by believers in prayer. This gift is a very incomplete language and what we will call groanings that cannot be uttered. Mark that language. Sometimes these groanings of the heart come out of our mouths like the babbling of a baby. The important thing is that the Holy Spirit is using it to facilitate a pouring out of the heart before God. So the sense is that this particular kind of speaking in tongue, which is a praying in tongue, is simply a babbling, an incoherent babbling, and it is something that is done out loud in worship. An example is given to us by USA Today. Fortunately, if we haven't seen this in action, we have an illustration here. The article says On a wave of emotion, the man at the front of the church broke into a language only he and his God could understand. a li a ni a, la ni, said Bill, a worshiper at a Pentecostal church in the San Francisco Bay Area. With eyes closed and palms raised skyward, he continued in a whispered rush Ma ni a ni ta la a ka Ma-ni-a-ni-ta-la-a-ka-wa. Well, the person was speaking in tongues, a verbal form of prayer, the article goes on to say, known as glossolalia, and then apparently the individual was interviewed after the service by the reporter, and he said, it's a kind of high. So that's the second uh, major common interpretation of what it means to pray in tongues. The third, I would argue, most common interpretation that you will come across, and this is probably even more common or most common among charismatics. And we need to distinguish between Pentecostals and charismatics. Pentecostals are a denomination, and charismatics are people who are committed to uh, some of the continuation of some of the spiritual gifts, and they may be scattered in many different evangelical or Protestant or even Roman Catholic denominations. Uh, But this particular interpretation is that praying in a prayer tongue is something that is used as a means of private edification. Uh, We've moved from public worship now to the prayer closets. And this is uh, argued a means of edification to the saints, something that they should do at home on their own. Private, personal use. And what they will argue is that the particular prayer tongue is incomprehensible to the person who's using it. They don't know what they are saying. It is some sort of an emotional release where the tongue is loosed and what comes out is nothing more than babbling. But at the end of the day, people who have experienced often will say it was mystically edifying. They got something out of it, you see. Now, the people who defend this particular interpretation vigorously maintain that it's something that happens, but you don't understand it. It's not something that's rational. It's not something that can be interpreted using human language per se. It's just sort of an emotional release that is under the control of the Holy Spirit, and it is for the edification of the saints. So what I want to do as we think about those various interpretations is ask the question, how is it that they are defended? And what you will find is in most of the cases, they are not defended from 1 Corinthians 14. And I will show you why in a moment, why they're not defended in 1 Corinthians 14, because there's no leg to stand on there. They are generally defended... Uh, based upon four different passages. And I'm only going to show you two because they're similar enough in kind that you only need to look at two. And one of the passages that is often appealed to is Jude chapter 20, or Jude 20. There's no chapter in Jude, it's just a one-chapter letter. But Jude 20 says this, You, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. You see, there's the key. They will jump from 1 Corinthians 14, and the reference to praying in a tongue in 14, and then praying in the Spirit in 15, and say, Okay, what we find is a parallel in terms of the language in Jude 20. So you might ask, well, <clears throat> what does Jude 20 mean then when it says praying in the Holy Spirit? Well, the first thing that we should notice as we think about what Jude is saying there is does anywhere in that particular letter of Jude, Jude reference any of the charismatic gifts? Does he talk about prophecy? Does he talk about uh, speaking in tongues? Uh, Any of this? And the answer is no. So we're really left with nothing from the context of Jude to help us understand. And so it seems to me that a very reasonable way to try to understand what praying in the Holy Spirit means is to compare it to similar language in the New Testament when something is done under the control of the Holy Spirit. That's fair. It's a linguistic way of analyzing something. It's saying, how are similar words used That's the only other option we have. There's nothing in context that can help us. And so I would just pick an activity, uh, a situation of doing something in the Holy Spirit that will help us. And, and, And one that I would suggest is walking in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit. Paul uses that language, for instance, in Galatians 5, 16 and 25 out in Galatians, there's no reference at all to uh, to charismatic gifts. So we, what we have to do is understand Paul's language and context. And the first thing that we would say is that when Paul advises the Corinthians or rather the Galatians to walk in the Spirit, he's not refu- uh, referring to some sort of peculiar way of walking, as if on all fours or doing handstands. It's a metaphor to refer to the Christian life. It's a metaphor. When Paul says, walk in the Spirit, he is talking about the Christian walk. And he is talking about a particular way of living, and it's contrasted over against walking according to the flesh. It's, it's contrasted to walking over, uh, in a way, against our depraved nature. And as you analyze this whole phrase within the context, it's very clear that walking in the Spirit is about walking under the control of the Holy Spirit. It's about walking in a way that's ethically consistent with the Holy Spirit. It's about walking in a way that is in submission to what the Spirit teaches and commands. And when that happens, certain kinds of spiritual fruit emerge in the life. Now... Just plugging that back into Jude 20, uh, we would have to say, without any further guidance in the context of Jude, uh, which would indicate that praying in the spirit has something to do with a spiritual gift, We would have to say that similar kind of language would indicate that praying in the Spirit, is praying under the control of the Spirit. Praying in a way that's consistent with the aims of the Holy Spirit. Praying in such a way that's under the direction of the Holy Spirit, or the prompting of the Holy Spirit, or according to the uh, ethical principles of the Holy Spirit. But there's nothing in Jude 20 which would tell us anything about uh, this being a prayer language. So that passage has to be set aside as a passage which can inform us in any way about what it means to pray in a tongue. Well, the other passage that we could look at is Romans 8.26. And I already uh, sort of referred to this uh, and had you note the language of groaning. But this is the passage you'd find it in. You could just sort of turn there uh, with me. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. And just to help us understand what's going on there. uh, The Apostle was talking about the Christian life being full of suffering. But he says, "You know what? If 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 you suffer, and while you suffer, you cling to Christ, uh, you have the promise and the assurance that you will be glorified." And uh, Paul, knowing that that's a bitter pill, talking about the sufferings of the Christian life, uh, gives a series of encouragements to the saints. In verses 18 through 25, he encourages the saints by saying that that persevere in sufferings with hope, knowing that uh, there's something that's so much greater that awaits them than the temporary setbacks and trials and sufferings of this age. Verses 28 through uh, 29 and 30 is another set of encouragements for the saints, basically saying, uh, be confident that whatever struggles you're going through, uh, they are all ordained of God. They have been appointed by Him, and they are for your good and for His glory. Now, verses 26 and 27 fit in that flow of of series of encouragements to the saints, and you can kind of see that in the beginning words, where it says, in the same way. In the same way. In the same way what? Well, what Paul is saying, in the same way that hope sustains you in the midst of your sufferings, in the same way the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Okay. Now, I I went through the context uh, so that we would understand that Paul, in context, is not talking about spiritual gifts. He's not talking about praying in tongues, okay? He's not talking about prophecy. He's not talking about miracles. He's not talking about interpretations. He's talking about the Christian life with its sufferings. And what he says for you this morning, people of God... For your encouragement is that in the midst of your sufferings, the Holy Spirit helps your weakness. Now, what's your weakness and suffering? Well, we all have all kinds of weaknesses. But a principal weakness is that in the midst of our trials, we don't know what to pray for. See, that's what Paul is talking about. Right after he says, in the same way the Spirit helps our weakness, he says, for. You see that? I hope you have that in your translation, because it makes it clear what Paul is saying when he says, the Spirit helps our weakness. What's the weakness? Well, the weakness is, you don't know what to pray for. Terrible translation here in the NASV when it says how. That's not what the original says. It says what. The problem is not that we lack instruction in the manner of how to pray. The problem is in the midst of our anxieties and struggles and heartaches and difficult times is we don't know what to pray for. Now you've been there. You have a terrible uh, event happen to your life, a terrible frustration, a broken dream, uh, a a harm in your relationship, a difficult providence comes into your life. And, And one of the first things that you want to say is, why me, Lord? But you don't say that because you're afraid to say that. And so you sit there just thinking, I don't even know what to say. I'm overwhelmed. This is I I prayed about this particular circumstance and and I was hoping and my dreams were attached to it and, and my affections were absorbed into it. And then all of a sudden the contrary thing happened and I don't even know what to do now. I don't know why this has happened to me. And at this point, I don't even know what to say. I don't know how to respond to it. You see, that's what your frustration is. That's the weakness. But here's what the Apostle says. Even though we don't know what to pray for as we should, he says the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for our work. Now this is fascinating because what the Apostle Paul is saying is while you are sitting there in your frustration and your tears and your maybe even your anger and your exasperation and your inability to understand the whole set of circumstances and how you to respond to it and what you're to pray for, what Paul says is the Holy Spirit comes into your life and into your situation and He begins to intercede. Now it's very emphatic in the original. Very emphatic basically what it says is the Spirit and He Himself, He steps in and He takes charge and notice what He does. He intercedes for us with what? Groanings. He say aha, prayer time. Remember? That's what the Pentecostal teacher advised. Remember that quote we had here? Incomplete language, which we would call groanings that can't be uttered. Look at the verse here. It says groanings too deep for words. Is it a prayer tongue? Well, no, it's not a prayer tongue, and I can tell you why. Because the words literally say, can't be verbalized. See, it's not you just going, oh, woe is me. No, because it's the Holy Spirit uttering the groanings. And what the text says is, you're not verbalizing. He's not verbalizing. Well, I guess this verse doesn't help people who appeal to Romans 8.26 to explain the phenomena of speaking in tongues in 1 Corinthians 14. Now, you may say, well, it's a lot to go into on a very warm Sunday morning. But the the point of it is this. I I did this because there's nowhere else to turn in the New Testament to to, to sort of get answers to what's going on in 1 Corinthians 14. You have to interpret 1 Corinthians 14 based upon the words and the context of that chapter. Just because in a couple other places in the New Testament you have apparent superficial parallels in terms of language... You can't just say, Aha, well, I'll just plug this all together and jumble it up, mix it up together, and look, here it is, right here. It means uh, groanings that can't be uttered, it means just uh, some sort of babbling gibberish shout loud. But that's not what any of it even means. That's, that's the unfortunate part. It doesn't mean this. And you see, Christians all over are taught this stuff as if it's gospel truth, as if the word, it's all, it's all right here in the Bible. See? My pastor pointed to me to, to Romans 8.20, groanings can't be uttered. What? Your pastor should have told you uh, that means the language itself can't even be verbalized. So how could it be that praying in tongues is you speaking out loud and utter gibberish? See, it can't mean that. And see, this is one of the problems that, that seems to me to face this whole issue of the charismatic gifts is that it's really not based, and I, I'm, I'm just completely convinced of it, after carefully studying First Corinthians and carefully studying the rest of the New Testament and carefully studying the arguments that are used to defend it, I'm hundred percent convinced that the position of the continuation of the charismatic gifts and how and, and particular meanings that are assigned to them, I'm, I'm completely convinced that the position and the interpretations are not rational. They are not based upon the Word of God. They are completely uh, figments of imagination. And they're based entirely on feeling or experience. And and this is what you'll find over and over again as you read people defending it and explaining it. They'll say, I know you have your interpretations of your Bible passages, but I have my experiences. You don't understand how I felt. So you can do all your fancy interpreting, but I have my feelings and my experiences so I know when Paul says, praying in a tongue, I know what he means is that I have this emotional, cathartic release. It does all kinds of wonderful things for me spiritually. Everything from scrambling up prayer requests that Satan can't understand and blocked, uh, block going to the throne of God. Or just some sort of uh, gibberish that's somehow irrationally edifying to me. They say, why are you allowed to do that? And why are you allowed to get away with teaching that when that would not be allowed in any other profession under the sun? Can you imagine a doctor treating patients according to feelings? I've got your blood tests and I've got your x-rays and they tell me uh, that you got this, but my feelings say, we're going to treat you for a common cold. Can you imagine an engineer or a group of engineers are responsible for building a bridge or whatever? Instead of doing mathematical computations saying, well, hey, all of us feel like this is how you should build it. Or how would you like it if you got into a plane and that's the last place I'd like to ever go? (laughs) But imagine you're flying across the states to see a friend or a family member and the captain gets on and says, well, I've decided not to use the aeronautical instruments today. I'm just going to fly by feel." You know what? We would never tolerate that. And we shouldn't. But it's sad to say that is what controls the interpretation of these passages far more than the actual words. Praying in tongues does not mean gibberish, scrambled up prayer requests, or cathartic releases. Come back to the passage now, and let's look at it, beginning with verse 13. And I want us to see that what Paul was doing is admonishing the church. He says, Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Let's begin with the word, therefore. Remember the Martin lloyd Jones rule of biblical interpretation. Whenever you see a therefore, what are you supposed to do? Stop and ask what the therefore is there for. What is the therefore telling you? Well, the therefore is telling you, look back to verse 12. And what's the big idea of verse 12? Well, the big idea of verse 12 is, use spiritual gifts for edification. But well, Paul's going to tell you how you use tongues now for edification. He already did in verse 5, by the way. He already said prophecy is greater unless the one who's speaking in tongues interprets. So you already know. But now Paul's going to just unfold it for you. Here's the principle. So verse 13 is looking back to the principle of edification and it's applying it to the situation of using tongues. He says, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Now let's look at the word tongues. That's the second thing we're we'll going to look at in the admission. What is a tongue? Well, guess what? The word for tongues here is the very same word that is used all throughout 1 Corinthians 14 and all throughout 1 Corinthians 12. It's always the same word. It's glossa, which is also the very same word that is used in Acts 2, in Acts 10, and Acts 19, all the other instances of the uses are rather references to the speaking of tongues in the New Testament. What does that mean? Paul is speaking of the very same tongue that we spoke about last week and that we defended at length, which is a supernatural speaking of divine inspired truth in a foreign language that the speaker has never studied or known. I know that's a lot of words. It's a mouthful of syllables. But the, the fact of the matter is, the tongues that are in view here, see it says, anyone speaks in a tongue, all he's doing is referring to this ability. Which, which the Spirit sovereignly gives or gave to particular individuals to communicate the Gospel in a foreign language. That's all he's talking about. Here's what he says next. And this is the dominant idea of the entire passage. He says, Whoever speaks in a tongue, let him pray that he may what? Interpret. Now that's the key word. Interpret. That's the dominant thought in the passage. Interpretation. Now that word is used only six times in the New Testament. Four of them are used in Corinthians. Always means translate from a foreign language into another foreign language. I'll give you one example. And you don't have to turn there, just listen. Acts 9.36. Luke, the author of Acts, references a disciple named Tabitha, which he says translated in Greek is called Dorcas. Okay, what did he do? He uses the very same word that Paul uses here, which means translate from one language to another. By the way, Tabitha means gazelle in Aramaic. And guess what? Dorcas means gazelle in Greek. So all he did was take one word in one foreign language and he translated it into another foreign language so that it was what? Understandable. Does that sound like gibberish? Does that sound like Paul was saying, by the way, when one speaks in tongues, pray that he may interpret the gibberish into English. No, it's always used to refer translating from one foreign language into another foreign language. Well, the only other thing that I want us to point out here is just uh, for sake of ease and clarity. Uh, He says, he refers to speaking in tongues. He says, the principle for speaking in tongues is that the person who speaks in it must interpret. But then he references a couple of different modes of speaking in tongues. Verse 14, he says, pray in a tongue. He says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. And then you have 15 where he talks about singing with the Spirit and singing with the mind. Almost everybody believes that a word is dropped out. Basically what he's saying, we say singing with the Spirit is is uh, praising in a tongue in the Spirit. And that, that's complete... I mean, everybody, charismatics and non-charismatics alike believe that, so it's nothing controversial. I'm just saying, all Paul is doing is referring to different modes. You see, the tongue phenomena doesn't change just because we have a different medium one being speaking the other being praying the other being singing it's the same it's a tongue and so we just have a different tongue so there's your admonition this is the dominant idea in the passage let the person who speaks in tongues pray that he may interpret from one foreign language to the other now let's look at the reasons why verse 14 and following are you with me so far I know, it's it's a, it's a lot. But, you know, we have to just tell you what the Bible says. Otherwise, we have nothing else to say. Verse 14, he says, four. Alright, what does that tell you? The very first word says, I am now applying the principle of verse 13, pray that he may interpret, to a specific situation of praying in tongues. Okay? He's just applying the principle of verse 13 to the different medium of praying in a tongue. He says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What does that mean? Because that's really a nub of the argument. My spirit and my mind. Well, I I honestly believe that the best interpretation of my spirit refers to uh, my spiritual gift. Where the Holy Spirit in me is expressing himself. And you can find agreement pretty much between a lot of charismatic scholars and non-charismatic scholars in that interpretation. So that's not the tricky part of the verse. Here's the part of the verse that becomes tricky. Paul says, but my mind is unfruitful. Now there is the nub of the, of the controversy. My mind is unfruitful to who? To me? Or to the people who are hearing me? Well, it has to be to the people who are hearing me based upon the context. But get this, if Paul is saying in verse 14 that my mind is unfruitful, and he's saying the speaker's mind is unfruitful, it completely eliminates all the other options. It eliminates the private edification interpretation. Because verse 14 is explaining or providing the rationale for why you have to interpret. See, Paul is saying, if you're going to pray in a tongue, you have to interpret. Otherwise, it's not fruitful for anybody. The whole point of verse 13 is Paul is saying, we want tongues to be fruitful. And all of the other interpretations say, oh, who cares about that? It's fine if it's irrational and unintelligible. No, that's not what Paul says at all. Paul gives this as the first example of applying the principle of verse 13. He says, pray that you may interpret. He says, because if you don't, it's completely useless. And Paul doesn't commend you to do useless things. So it has to refer to others. No one gets anything out of it. That's what Paul is saying. Now look at verse 15. It backs that up. Paul says he's looking back at the situation that if somebody praying in a tongue and they don't translate it, and it's unfruitful to everybody, so he asks the question in verse 15, well, what's the outcome then? What's the point of all this? And Paul gives the immediate answer. He says, I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the mind. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the mind. What does he say? As soon as I pray in the tongue, or as soon as I sing in the tongue, I'm going to interpret. That has to be... What that means when he says, with the mind, with the understanding. And it has to be that because of the way he connects the next thought to it in verse 16. He says, otherwise. See that? Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, in other words, if you just sit there and pray in tongues out loud, or if you just uh, praise in tongues out loud, and you don't translate it, that's what he's saying, otherwise, if you don't do that, if you just uh, pray in the tongue only, he says this, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say, Amen? Since he doesn't know what you're saying. Well, that makes it pretty clear that Paul is referring to the use of this gift in a public context where other people are listening and they can't make heads or tails of what you're saying because it's not translated. Paul says the ungifted. Uh, that's not a good translation. That's the second time I've had to correct the New American Standard this morning, and that's a record, I think. It doesn't mean ungifted. The word in the, in the, in the Greek is idiotes. It's the very same word we get our word idiot from. And in Greek, it means somebody who hasn't been systematically instructed. It has nothing to do with gifting. It means they've never been taught. And so what Paul is saying here is the person who's never been taught in this foreign language, when they hear you speak in it or pray in it or sing in it, they've never been taught that language, they're not going to know to, how to respond. They don't know how to give assent because they don't know the language. So, from every angle, as you begin to look at this a whole phenomena of praying in tongues, and then even singing in tongues, it's very clear that what Paul is talking about is, is a capacity to pray or sing or speak in a foreign language. And he says, if you do that, that's fine as long as you what? You interpret. Now, he reinforces that very same thought in verses 18 and 19. He says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also than ten thousand with a tongue. You see, the whole issue continually revolves around this. Whenever you do something in worship, it has to be understandable or it's not edifying. That's the whole point of Paul giving this A very distinct set of instructions about praying or rather speaking in a tongue and interpreting. It has to be understandable. If it's praying, if it's speaking, if it's singing, it has to be understandable. Paul repeatedly ties the use of the spiritual gift to making it understandable so that it's edifying. He does that in verse 2, in verse 4, in verse 5, in verse 12... In verse 13, all of the illustrations of 14, 16, and then in 17, he makes it plain enough. You're giving thanks well enough, but the other's not edified. And then again, it's all throughout the context. Use the spiritual gift, Paul says, but make sure it's understandable so that it's edifying. And that brings us to our conclusion. I know this has been a just a really, a, a ton of information this morning, and Um, I'm grateful that you've been tracking, hopefully, with me to understand this. But it's important that we know what the Bible teaches. And what Paul was saying, first of all, by way of application, this is very similar to what we were last week. Whatever we do in worship, we have to make sure that it's edifying, so we have to make sure that it's understandable. Whatever we do, it has to be understandable, because if it's not understandable, it can't edify you. And that's precisely the reason why we have a question and answer time every single Sunday after church. Because we want to give you the opportunity to say, hey, I didn't understand. It was so hot in here this morning, I fell asleep for 20 minutes and I woke up at the conclusion part and I didn't pull it all together. Or you're using words that my dictionary doesn't even have. Okay, so what the point of it is, is that if that happens, you're supposed to say to the pastor, I don't understand. Would you help me? Well yes, we'd be glad to help you. Because you can't be edified, you can't be built up in your resolve to trust God and to fear God and to obey God and to live for God's glory unless you understand. You see, that's the whole point. You know, you can't get very far in the Christian life based upon emotion. You'll get just a little way into the Christian life and you're going to hit the brick wall of trials. And emotion doesn't work on those. You have to have deep down resolve that comes by God's grace. So Paul says... You have to do things in such a way that they're understandable, so that they're edified. The second thing is, and it's very similar to that point and very similar to the point I made last week. But we have to do things in such a way so that they're understandable, so that you are able to say amen. Notice what he says in verse 16. His whole reason for why the tongues have to be interpreted, whether they're prayed, spoken, or sung is so that the person who doesn't know that foreign language will be able to say, Amen! You know, we're not really used to doing that in Reformed worship. I'll never forget the first time I got an Amen when I was preaching. I stopped and I looked around because I'd never had it happen to me before. I couldn't believe it. And the guy after church took me aside he said he apologized and he said I'm sorry I know reformed people aren't used to that but something you said really struck a chord and I wanted to say it I hope I didn't throw you off track. Well of course he threw me completely off track. It took me a couple of minutes of me stammering and stuttering around before I was able to collect my thoughts and go on with my message. But Paul says it's okay to say amen. He says if you're not saying amen there's something wrong. And I know that uh, is being interpreted correctly because dear brother Justin Martyr, church father who uh, lived and died for his faith just about 20 to 30 years after the last apostle died, described early Christian worship, here's what he said. On the day called Sunday, all who live in the cities or in the country gathered together to one place. And the writings of the apostles and the writings of the prophet are read as long as time permits. And then when they're done reading, the preacher verbally instructs and exhorts based upon these things. They all rise up together and pray. When the prayers are ended, the bread and the wine are brought. And the pastor offers prayers with thanks according to his ability. And then the people say, Amen. You see, it was stamped upon the consciousness of the early worshiping church that what was done in church had to be done in such a way that it was understandable because the people of God were supposed to be able to say Amen and give their assent to everything that was proclaimed and to everything that was done and to everything that was prayed and to everything that was sung. And they got that from Paul's admonition to the church about what it means to pray in tongues. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we ask that You would help us to discipline ourselves, to conform our thoughts and our actions, our interpretations and our doctrines according to what you and what you only have said and only in your word. And deliver us from being prideful and haughty because we are attempting to frame accurate doctrines from the careful interpretation of your word. But Lord, we also realize that it is essential to our edification and to the blessing of the church that we confess and believe and teach only what you have revealed in your inspired word. So, Lord, help us to have the diligence and perseverance to submit to your teachings and help us, Lord, to rejoice in the truth as we hear it proclaimed and to receive it with faith and love in our hearts. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.